Welcome to the Voices of Open Government, a podcast from the Open Government Partnership. We started the show because we wanted to tackle the ways we can do government differently. How can government be more transparent, inclusive, participatory, and accountable? On the podcast, you'll be hearing from anti-corruption advocates, social justice champions, and public servants from different parts of the world. We'll learn how they are making government work for citizens. I'm your host, Stephanie Bluma. Now let's get started. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how citizens can help monitor and improve public services. For this episode, we're going to focus on the state of Kaduna in Nigeria. To explore this, we've invited Saeed Tafida to the podcast. Saeed is the lead and co-founder of Follow Taxes, an initiative that tracks government projects, simplifies procurement data, all so they can fight corruption and enhance public services. Also with us today is Aiden Eyakuze. Aiden is the executive director of Twaweza, which is located in East Africa. He's also a dear friend of mine and the Open Government Partnership. And I'm happy to say he'll be our co-chair in 2022. Welcome. Thanks to both of you for joining us. We are incredibly excited um, to hear your stories today. Saeed, I guess I'll start with you. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. It's fascinating. You've been a reporter. You've worked in local governments. You've started um, some civil society organizations. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to working on transparency and ending corruption issues? Thank you so much for that question. I started actually volunteering around civil society organizations and NGOs very pretty young. I think since when I was about 16 or so. And uh, ever since, my only interest is how do we improve the governance, the language of transparency, accountability, our own land later. My only interest is how do we improve governance? How do we turn things around? How do we reduce the level of poverty or the deficit in the service delivery? That has been the interest. Now, through that, I started the work. I think the first job I picked was with NGOs and I started working, then later on joined the media. But in all of it, my whole interest, one interest is how do I improve the service delivery? Now, when I joined the first NGO, started working is on reproductive health. Yes, we're reaching out to many people, uh, to younger generations on sexual education and all, but I still feel the source of the problem is not still being addressed. From there, I switched and I joined the media and I joined as a reporter. I focused on reporting people angle stories, following government institutions, following budgets and all. But I still don't feel the satisfaction because I still feel if I really want to achieve the result I want is to do more in making sure there's more understanding of governance and how governance is being done. When after studying all this, then I joined the government itself and then I started the work and then I got hit by different blocks because I joined as a, as a junior senior executive, which means I don't make decisions, I only implement decisions. So that also created a challenge. However, sometimes around 2013, I joined the Mandela Washington Fellowship of Young African Leaders. It's a program started by the American government, Obama's government. And the aim is to rally young Africans to create a result that we want to see in Africa. That is to share experiences and share growth. At that platform, 
I got most of what I needed. And that was the first time when I got introduced into all these major technicalities, how um, transparency, accountability, um, uh, open government partnership, uh, a global partnership as a move and all. So having all this, then I joined it. And sometimes in 2015 at the um, Open Data Conference in Canada, I met the OGP actors then. And that's when we started moving. How do we make sure as a country we join as a Nigeria? Then I joined the Open Alliance here in Nigeria, and together we pushed the country to join, and we joined there as a candidate. So my history has been wanting to see things better. And later on, I come to realize the best thing is to stick to making sure governance is effectively open and people really engage in it, and as a result, they give the result. And hence, I kept to the trend I am on. It's small world. So the Obama Young African Leaders Program, I worked on that um, when I was part of that administration. And obviously, Obama was one of the driving forces behind the open government partnership as well. So <laughs> it all comes full circle. That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Kaduna Eisenhower's, which is a, a project we've been super interested here, looking at how it's rolled out. But I want to start first just by asking you, about the pandemic that's obviously impacted lives and livelihoods. And, and what is it like in Kaduna right now? What is kind of the state of affairs there? Um, the pandemic, like most of the places across the world, hit when nobody was ready. And uh, Kaduna has its own share of effects because the budgets have to be rescheduled. So many things has to work on to make sure that there's a certain direct focus on making sure lives are safe first, which means most things have to be sent back to the health sector. But in generality, Kaduna State, because of the way it sets some of its activities, especially around procurement and budget, and the way it's been opening processes, it made it much easier and less complicated when the pandemic hit. Already because of the adoption of the modernized system of putting everything online, budget processes approved and initiated online. So even when the pandemic came, the whole processes were not altered. I actually conducted a research to even affirm that. Research. So it's not just from hearsay. I conducted a research to affirm that in which we did a research and we realized already the state has a pool of uh, contractors to pull from and work from. However, it affected so much because there are so many activities that will have been done, but it couldn't have been done because the funds have to be redirected somewhere else to make sure that the right result has been achieved, especially in making sure there's a good setup for emergency centers, good focus for drugs, PPEs, and all, and which is now needed in constant number, unlike then that it's just a normal business. So this it's, it has a fair share of AF effect. And also civil societies are also some extent affected because the level of activities were also reduced. But to some extent, I think we're also weathering through because it's not yet over. We are now at the Delta variant. I just hope we won't get to the Zebra variant. Can I ask if I might, um, in terms of the number of people in Kaduna who've been affected, the infections, hospitalizations, that, could you give us a sense of the scope of people who were touched in Kaduna by the pandemic? Um, Kaduna is among the states that actually kept more data. If you look at even the tally of the states, you just see Lagos, Abuja, and next it will be Kaduna. So Kaduna tried to keep tally. It's among the first states that locked down. So it affected in two ways because when we're discussing the coronavirus to people in the state, it's not just about people who are even got infected because some people got infected, but their businesses are not really directly linked to people. So for that, they are not fully affected. While there are others who got affected because of the lockdowns for hotels, restaurants, people who have to come out to sell. Nigeria is a small country with a lot of informal economic sector. 
which every day you have to come up with something to sell. You take the little profit margin. It makes part of your meal of that day. Imagine you're asked to stay home for five months, six months. You didn't get to sell. So you didn't get to me. And it's not like you can eat what you sell. So it became a serious issue. So that has always been the challenge. So through a platform, and the platform is even part of the OGP in the state, we call it Tax Justice Network. Not the big global tax justice network that is trying to make sure multinationals do balance. We try to localize our own here. And what we try to do is with the partnership with the state internal revenue service, we came up with some of palliatives that will be given to some specific sectors while also enforcing some strength on some specific sectors. For example, sectors that are in supply of food chain. Those ones, most of them are not affected because those ones are open and businesses were fine and people ordered even more food to eat. So those ones, there wasn't much of a palliative. But those who needed little help, there was, in fact, the income taxes, which was localized in what we call the uh, provisional income taxes, was entirely suspended for the whole period so that people who have an ease. So to be candid, there was a certain degree of effect and the states tried to find a way to balance it up to the best of the ability and the resources. Thanks for that, Sayed. So Aiden, you have been a longtime proponent of open government values and how it relates to public services. And obviously, as Saeed has just told us and what just happened in Nigeria and pretty much everywhere else in the world has just exasperated existing problems. But can you talk a little bit about what are the challenges in making sure that public services are effectively delivered by the government? Wow, um, that's a great question. It's also a very big one. I think the challenges come in a number of shades. One is from the side of the recipient of the public services, the citizens, do they know what it is that they're entitled to get from the government? I think that's one area. Sometimes in many African contexts, and certainly in Tanzania, we feel like the government is doing us a favor when they provide us with good quality schooling or health or water or sanitation or electricity or even security. You know, it feels like a favor, but it actually isn't. It's a right. So one of the challenges is getting citizens to recognize that they're entitled to getting good quality uh, government services, not just any kind. I think the second thing then is, therefore, how do they exercise their right and their entitlement? How do they create the demand for that? And that comes to them being informed, but also organized. And I think this is where, you know, civil society organizations have a very important role to play in organizing and mobilizing the citizens to say, actually, this is our entitlement. You need to be delivering on it. I think the third part is, of course, on the government side, the supply side. How do you inspire or sometimes maybe even compel the side of government to actually deliver on its duty when sometimes they feel they don't necessarily need to or may not have the resources to do so adequately? Again, that's a a process of discussion, negotiation, compulsion, pressure even uh, for them to deliver on those services. Some of it, and I'll give an example of what we've been doing in Tuawesa on the big question of uh, education, especially early grade education. The big challenge there is, of course, children and parents don't realize that they ought to be getting a much better uh, learning outcome than they were getting from government. Uh, We had to do some research to show that uh, children are not learning at the levels that they're supposed to uh, set up in the curricula. So that's an informational piece. Uh, We try very hard to do the mobilizational piece, and that is once parents know 
that they're getting somewhat shortchanged? Can they organize themselves to actually demand better? That was really, really, really tough. In fact, I should put hand on heart and say, I don't think we succeeded in mobilizing parents to actually demand better quality education. So we're finding ourselves working inside the government to try and inspire them to do a different innovative way of delivering education, such as, for example, by motivating teachers at the early grade levels to actually teach sufficiently that children are learning foundational reading and writing and arithmetic skills. You know, so working inside the supply side to give them some ideas on how this might work, proving that it does work, and then hopefully they will take it up and amplify and scale up uh, and take it on board across the entire country. Now, that's a very tall ask, but you can see the chain. Information on the side of the recipient. I think they call them the beneficiaries. Um, rights holders. There we go. <laughs> rights holders, you know, need to be informed that they deserve this. The providers need to be able to provide a high quality. And we sit there in the middle trying to make this happen. But importantly, number one is information. So the transparency is very, very key. Number two, citizens need to know and therefore are included in the decisions about the provision of public services. And number three, that uh, we're able as citizens to hold government to account for quality, for quantity, for affordability, all of these things. So these three things come together and are all part of the package of opening up government to make sure that it works for the citizens in very concrete ways. That's great. And I, I liked the transition you made there, Aiden, from using the words beneficiaries to rights holders. I think that's a really important distinction. And also, it's a, a great segue to the project we really wanted to talk about today, which is Makaduna Eyes and Ears work. And as I understand it, and I've talked to several people about it, this was a program that started because they looked and they saw that funds were not being effectively spent by contractors. So maybe they were asked to build a road or a school or a hospital, but it wasn't happening. So, but at the same time, the government really didn't have the ability to monitor everything on a regular basis. So they enlisted the help of citizens to go out in their communities and see if what the government said was supposed to happen was actually happening. Um, and there were a lot of kind of innovative approaches, I thought, in terms of using radio and other ways to communicate. So I've always found the project fascinating. And Saeed, I'm curious what you think is the really unique part of Eisenhower's and Kaduna. I think the unique part of it is that inculcating the citizens back into the process of governance. I think that is what is the most important. Those people should have a voice on if it has been done right or wrong. That also noting that the government does not have a full resources because it becomes more expensive to pay for a contract and also pay for money just to make sure the contract has been done right. That's an expensive means of managing. Even if I'm paying someone to go and monitor, he may go today, tomorrow, he may skip the next day. But if there is somebody who is there who owns the process, it means the person will be looking at it every day, will be asking the right question every day, and will be getting the right result every day. So I think that is the fascinating part. Then the second part of it is the attempt to make sure that it all inculcates all the processes. Because the eyes and ears, when it started, it fully started as just a portal where people download the app online track projects online and submit. After engagements with us and to and fro on some of the challenges and they need to improve it, there is an increase, there is an enrollment of a whole phone line which was added to the whole process in which you can pick a phone and call because 
I don't understand that this is still Africa and it means not everybody may have access to internet or somebody will even claim my Android phone cannot download this, cannot download that. And for that, there's an access using the phone line, there's access through the radio and all. So this is very important, especially when it comes to service delivery. The idea that there is a second eye to everything creates what we call the Hatton effect. The fact that you know somebody is looking at you to see if you're doing right. And you don't know that somebody. When you know that someone is coming from the head office to come and monitor you, you are likely to prepare, get your house in order, clean everything. In this situation, you don't know who that somebody is because it's anybody in the community who can actually just use his phone, trace your project, come to the project site, snap the pictures without even necessarily talking to you and posting them and uploading them online. So that creates the second eye, that creates the power and the vigor for you to be careful and do things right. Bottom line is, it gives that ease. Unlike before that, you just be passing by, you just see a government project. Now, if you track it, you see what government project it is, how much is dedicated, what is the amount, who is the contractor, and you have any question, you get to contact him and ask him. So that gives the power of bringing back citizens into the whole process and creating this low ownership, which will see the sustainability to the future. Yeah, Said, it's such a fascinating project. I got to tell you, when I was last in Kaduna in the governor's office, I think it was 2016, it was literally just starting. It may even have been just a pilot, but there it was in full technicolor glory on a screen to see how it was going to work. And um, I had a question then, and my question remains now. This is a very citizen-centric initiative. So how do you convince ordinary Kadunans to participate? How do you maintain enthusiasm and engagement by citizens of Kaduna in this particular project? And what are they saying about it? Uh, the truth is, um, it's not been easy. First, you should know already we have a history of government apathy against the government. Mm. People feel government's lying. Whatever they're saying, they're just trying to make up. He's just trying to make sure he come back into election. Now, two things we've been doing with the ministry. There's Department of Monitoring and Evaluation, which is at the Budget and Planning Commission. One, we created a plan of town hall engagements where we go to town halls. We call the citizens. Naturally, people will tell you government doesn't work, government doesn't want to listen to me. But if you sit one-on-one -on -one with him and ask him, what are your problems? He will have a list. Now, when they give us those lists, we take them personally just because we want to use it as an example to tell them next time submit through the portal. We follow through on those ones and give them feedback. So that created the ease and for that lesson, building the trust, let me call it this way. That creates in building the trust. Then also at Transparency and uh, at Follow Taxes, that's my organization, we also create a rewarding system. We had the first one this year in which we assessed from the portal how many communities submitted the highest number of complaints to the portal. And we singled them and we awarded them. For their so you reward the complainers. You are definitely not a government. <laughs> that it's not just like that. We get to see that you are the active citizen. We announced publicly. Yeah. We made it a media. In fact, it's, we did it. We lined it with the OGP week. So we did the award. That's our activity in the OGP week. Mm -hmm. So we used it. We created an award system. We said this, you are awarded for this and that and that. And also, remember, it's a lodgement of complaints. Now, the MDAs that put the highest number of contract details online mm. and also that responded to such complaints highest we also singled them and awarded them mm -hmm. so we created a word system that will build in okay as even as a government official i'm not just doing something no i'm doing something that others are recognizing and coming to say thumbs up you've tried you've tried 
The same thing with the civil society organization. So these are some of the things we've created on our own way to see that we create a system. You know what is so interesting about that side? I mean, I think it's brilliant that you're incentivizing not so much good behavior in terms of great execution, but good behavior in terms of being open as a government entity to, to, to citizens. And then on the other side, you're incentivizing the agency, even though it comes across maybe as if you are incentivizing complaints, but that's just it. You know, people are not, don't take agency if they feel complacent or comfortable or powerless where they are. You know, so it's really quite exciting. I think this incentive that you do. So what kind of awards do you give? Is it a nice plaque, a certificate? What is it? The agencies, we give them plaque because the plaque matters to them. The organizations, the communities, we printed t-shirts, we organize a training for them, for their capacity building. We engage them more in activities. So the award is not even complete. It's like bringing them even more, but the fact that we go media and announce that these are the best, they are more dedicated, they are doing this, they are doing that, it gave the flavor and it gave the push that we need. That's fantastic because really citizen agency is a very tough nut to crack, especially to get it to be organic, spontaneous, positively directed. It's really, really, really tough. So congratulations on achieving that. Maybe we'll pick some tips uh, to work on here in Tanzania or Kenya or Uganda. Thank you. Yeah. It's okay. That's great. So, Saeed, I'm curious from the the awards, and I would love to see some photos of the Open Gov Week and the t-shirts and stuff if you have them. Do you have any specific examples of one of the communities of a particular school or health center or road project that was sort of put back on the right track through Eyes and Ears? Yes, I can give two for now. The health facility I spoke to you about, it in called Anguanshanu. It's a primary health facility center in which the data was acquired from the Eyes and Ears Center. And after visiting and reporting, we've confirmed, we followed through and they went and fixed it now. Noda is another primary school at, they call it Tudungwada Kaguru Road. It's a primary school in which the contractor was, has been given and the work in the portal said, in the eyes and ears said completed, but it's not. So after reporting, the contractor was contacted in partnership with the SBMCs. Um, there's a certain program the state has called the state business, state uh, board management committee. So when the report was done, it was also taken to the SBMCs who also worked together with the school, plagiarized on the contractor and he came back and now he has completed the classes and students are using them. So these are two, we can send you a list of those successes. The ministry keep the list and um, ours is to get more people join. So Saeed, let me ask you, you're being successful here, mobilizing government to be transparent a little bit more, mobilizing citizens to be more agency, getting things down on the ground. What are other states of Nigeria saying about this? Are they interested in doing their eyes and ears or are they just thinking that you guys are just trying to be the favorite son or daughter in Nigeria. <laughs> You're just showing off. Yeah, to be candid, I'm also a beneficiary to that. And um, I must disclose my sentiments. So um, because of this activity, Adama State engaged me as a consultant to support them in setting up the eyes and ears as a model in their own state. Plateau State has also a picking role in making sure it sets it sets in their own. KB State has picked role. And all of these are states that have joined the OGP at the national level. In fact, Plateau recently were, able to, were among the states that joined at the global. Globally, and they are all setting up the eyes and ears. 
They may not call it eyes and ears, but the same model, the same process, the same procedures. And so states are actually adopting it. And also, um, so, uh, some of the OGP local within the OGP local network have also been asking questions, sending mails on details on how it works. And you mean the global with- OGP local family? So this is all over the world. Yes. Some of the members of the global OGP local have been sending mails on details on how it is. So at night in Nigeria, so it's not just about winning. It's also about those states that are copying. I think I mentioned, I can try and come up with the list. Adamawa came, Tarabai came, KB State came, Plateau State came, Ucho and again. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the states, but they're all working to see how they localize it to best fit into their process. And the beautiful part of it is that term localizing. Because when we went to Adamawa, so many things that were not in the Kaduna, we're trying to inculcate it from the beginning. For example, automatic ticketing. Because we wanted to improve and make it even better so that it becomes like all of these mobile network reporting portals, mm-hmm. which if you report, you are confident to get a feedback and you get all of this. Yeah, Say, thanks for that. Um, just so people know, so OGP obviously um, has country members, but also local members. And Kaduna is a local member. Nigeria is a national member. And I think what's interesting when we look across the local portfolio, and Aiden, I'd love to address this question to you. You know, government's closer to the citizens at that level. So we see more innovation in public service delivery and local governments effectively meeting needs of citizens. Aiden, what do you think is the role of OGP in helping people like Saeed and others who have these really interesting programs? How does OGP help amplify them and tell the world about them and hopefully get them replicated in other places? That's a great question. I think the role of OGP is in two dimensions and Syed can either corroborate or say, actually, Aiden, that's not true. The first dimension is this one. It can inspire the local governments to really rethink and be innovative about how they can deliver public services, right? So so give them some ideas and the OGP local, what I really love about it is that it's a network of peers who face similar problems across many contexts. How do you help each other out? What ideas can you take from each other and inspire each other uh, in terms of dealing with very daily local problems? So I think that's one really important area that the OGP can help. And the second one is providing sort of a framework, a platform to actually put those ideas into practice. You know, this idea of having the multi-stakeholder forums of civil society and local government leaders sitting together, uh, identifying the problems and the solutions and a collaborative framework is really very important. I think the second one is providing a neutral, not a referee, but sort of a monitor through the independent review mechanism that uh, these commitments that are being jointly made are indeed ambitious, that they could actually Uh, lead to a change and improvement in the provision of public services. And so if they provide an independent stamp of approval or an independent source of advice uh, for how things can be improved. And these two things, the inspiration and the framework, I think can reduce the sometimes frustrating experimentation that many local governments could feel when they're trying to do good or trying to do better, trying to improve, but the mechanism of actually doing that, building the trust of citizens through civil society organizations can be very complicated. Having a good framework for articulating commitments, following up on their implementation, uh, evaluating their impact, all of that can be you know, administrative mumbo-jumbo and very difficult to do and many people could give up. So the framework provided by the OGP helps reduce that cost of innovation and that cost of inclusion 
uh, at the local government level. So, but I think that the really interesting one is just the stories that can flow from one local government to another uh, and inspire action. We've we've seen some stories go from Kigoma to Elgeo Marakret in Kenya. Uh, the story about homeless people were involved in solving a number of problems in the city of Austin, Texas, I think is absolutely amazing, can inspire other local government authorities to bring in marginalized populations, people who are sometimes maybe difficult to mobilize or just ignored by citizens and local government themselves in terms of their contribution to improving life uh, at the local government area. Yeah, that's great. Just for our listeners, the story in Austin, there was a large homelessness population and they'd been struggling with it for years. But what they did was actually bring in the homeless community and many of them became advocates for what they actually needed day-to-day and on the ground. And it's been a successful program that we've been highlighting at OGP. Um, and Aiden, it sounds like it traveled across the world <laughs> yes, um, and to some degree. That's fantastic. So, but I tell you a question for you as, as these stories move back and forth. What is there other things that OGP, specifically OGP local, could be doing to help your work? One of the issues is, um, just as Aiden laid at the foundation, most of these problems are common, especially across this region. And that was why even when we are at the Mandela Washington Fellow, at our alumni ties engagements, we always share those experiences. Though up to now we tease some whose country didn't join OGPs because it's still one way to fight, or like us who have the network to fight with and also to use the OGP as a platform to fight with. Now, what can the OGP do more to help that? Um, most of these countries that spend most of these funds, they're either taxes that we collect from the citizens and we use it for the infrastructural uh, development or some development aids that we get from development grants or foreign direct investments and all and all and all and all. Now, for local, that's our, ta- that's our local tax justice network has, has been working hard to fill in that gap in which we push for what we call tax for service, where we make sure that the fund, since it's collected directly, it makes sure it goes to where services can be seen directly, where results can be seen directly, while at the same time managing the process. But most of the aids, for example, and the grants that come in, it comes in, take, for example, the SIFTAS grant of $750 million for Nigerian state. The whole fund is supposed to work with civil society. Civil society is supposed to work with the government to make sure that those funds, there's a proper education around budget and involvement of citizens around budget. There's open contracting and citizens or citizen organizations are expected to be in the forefront in monitoring. But the whole of the $750 million was given to the government. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. The difference between larger NGOs that have the ability to monitor and report to the aid agencies in the way that they want because they are actually reporting back to their taxpayers in terms of how that money is spent. But in terms of how do you empower the local organizations on the ground who are really kind of on the front lines of doing the work. It's an interesting topic, Aiden. Any thoughts on it? Yeah, I think what is also incumbent upon the national civil society organizations is actually to provide support, even financial support, maybe especially financial support for local NGOs to be able to do this. This is an area that needs to be looked at more and more so that we're building that solidarity and making sure that we are effective in doing so. We're trying to ask the World Bank in this new IDA 20 replenishment, you know, the new amount of money they're raising uh, to provide for country borrowing to include a certain percentage for civil society organizations to hold governments to account. Um, now, I know it's probably going to be a long, a hard slog, but uh, we are definitely on that track to try and, and, and make sure this happens. But, but I, I just want to, again, 
blow the trumpet for OGP Local and that, that whole framework. Before OGP Local, you know, OGP was there at the national level, as effective as it could be. Uh, but I think there is an energy and an ability to really touch many, many more people's lives and also to respond to critics who might be saying this is too high level or this is open washing uh, because we don't actually see the impact on the ground directly. OGP Local allows us to actually see the effect uh, of transparency uh, on people's lives uh, on a daily basis. So I think that's something that I would urge colleagues in the civil society organizations operating at national, uh, global, to really pay attention to this and be deliberate about learning from how one can be entrepreneurial at the retail level of service delivery. Where are the roadblocks that they can advocate for to be unblocked uh, at the national, maybe even at the global level? One of which is, as Syed put it, funding uh, for local CSOs uh, to be able to hold local government to account. Thanks for that, Aiden. And Said, congratulations to you on this. I was, um, before joining OGP, I was head of public affairs for USAID, which is obviously the US aid agency. And stories like yours, the local stories on the ground are so, so important to tell these stories of what is happening, um, even in addition to the numbers and things that report up through the evaluation processes, but really to help explain um, what's happening and how the money is being spent. So congratulations on the success of the program, but also on the work that you're doing, even by just joining us here today, to tell the story so that people understand how this, how this works. So we are about out of time, but I do have one final topic to bring up. So Obviously, I know Ada knows this, but OGP is turning 10 in 2021. Um, so we are looking back, especially through this podcast, how do we learn lessons from what's already happened, but also looking forward to the next decade and how do we grow and expand OGP and an open government at large. So Ada, I'll, I'll start with you. What's your vision for open government in the next 10 years? I think open government is going to be what they call the general purpose technology for making sure that the contract between citizens and states works, is effective, and that it doesn't crumble into recrimination, uh, discrimination, inequality, loss of trust, and all of those negative things, which I'm afraid seem to be happening. But through open government uh, processes, which build trust because people are included in the room to make decisions and to monitor decisions, which builds trust because states and governments are held to account for what they're responsible to deliver, uh, which actually helps to deliver what people are expecting from their governments is the way to go forward. I think the top-down approach, the distant approach from the national to everybody else, I think that is running its course. And we really, really can use open government to mobilize and galvanize citizens' engagement in solving local problems, but also in solving national and global problems that we are uh, currently uh, facing. So I think there's a great future for open government, but we have a job to do to really articulate the, the process, the message, the value proposition that it provides uh, at all levels of, of government and of all society so that people actually take it up, make it their own, take examples of, of Kaduna and other places and really use it to improve their own lives and livelihoods uh, at that level. So we've got a job to do in terms of really promoting and learning from others and refining this model, this general purpose technology of uh, making the contract between citizens and governments work much, much better. 
Great. Thanks, Aiden. I'm learning a lot of great phrases from you today. So general purpose technology right holders is great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Saeed, um, same question to you. How do you see open government evolving over the next decade? As Francis Fukuyama said in the early 90s, that we've actually come to the end of history, a history where everything has to be determined, but where people come in and determine what exactly they want to see in their societies. That divide of saying the government did this, the government did do that, with an effective implementation and embracement of OGP, that divides get to vanish slowly. It means everybody get to contribute what they want the government to do, get to participate on what they want the government to do, get to directly advise on what they want the government to do, and the government get to deliver it to the best of its ability on what the citizen want them to do. The OGP I envisioned in the next 10 years is the OGP where everybody comes together to the best of its ability, identifying its own roles, co-creating, and at the same time, co-building a system that will enhance service delivery, that will change the fate of our societies, and will make things for better. That's great. Co-ownership, another great word. Um, well, at OGP, we often use the phrase, we're trying to make sure that governments work for the people they serve, not for themselves. And I, I think that's um, what we'll continue to be doing. So thank you both for your time today. An interesting conversation. And um, I know things will follow up here on the stories mentioned. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you all. hope you liked today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For the latest updates on open government, you can also follow OGP on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Before we go, we'd like to say a special thank you to our producers at Human Group Media for making this podcast possible. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope to catch you again on our next episode.